Good morning, church family. If you're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn now to the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, there's a, there should be a, a black Bible in the chair in front of you. You can just grab that, open up with me. And those black Bibles, Revelation is found on page 1028. We're looking at chapter 1 this morning where we left off last week. encourage you to keep your Bible open, follow along carefully, listen to what God is saying to us through his word, and prayerfully we'll ask the Lord to open our eyes and to, and to work in us, even as he does in John here. A few weeks ago, my, uh, one of my sons brought home a book from school that was a book of optical illusions, and it, and it had a collection of those pictures that are known as the magic eye pictures. Some of you might be familiar with those magic eye pictures. On the surface of the picture, it looks like a, a random set of patterns that repeat themselves, and you can't really make sense of the picture. But when you look at a magic eye picture just in the right way, all of a sudden, another picture pops out in 3D. So you might see this random pattern of something that you can't make sense of, but then all of a sudden, in 3D, you see this dolphin swimming through the ocean or you see a quarterback ready to launch a touchdown pass coming out at you in three dimension. When Magic Eye, the book first came out and was published in 1991, the title of the original book, the subtitle of the original book was Magic Eye, A New Way of Looking at the World. What's interesting is that in a sense, Revelation, the book of Revelation, does the same thing. We looked at last week, Revelation 1.1. It says the book is the revelation. In other words, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So as we read the book of Revelation, it gives the reader a new way of looking at the world. A new way of looking at the challenges that you're facing today. The heartbreak that you're enduring. The triumphs that you're enjoying. It gives a, a whole new way of looking at the world around us. What's different, though, is that the unveiling that we see in Revelation is not a magic trick, nor is it an optical illusion. In Revelation, Jesus pulls back the curtain to show John and then us the truth. Not an optical illusion, but the truth to show us reality that is. Reality we may not be able to see with our physical eyes, but reality that nonetheless is. Revelation helps us to see today in light of what's to come. It helps us to view today in light of the unseen realities of the present. Revelation reminds us that sometimes things are not as they seem. There is truth about God, truth about this world we live in, truth about ourselves that sometimes we're just simply unaware of, can't see it. Or it's there, but we just don't want to see it. We don't care to see it. Revelation 1 reminds us that we, in our unrighteousness, suppress the truth. It's not that God's hiding, God's speaking. We just don't want to hear it sometimes. But whether we like it or not, the reality that God unveils in Revelation is a reality, a truth that we all will face one day. 
So in, in that sense, the revelation of Jesus Christ has a purpose. It's written with a purpose. Its purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity about end time events. Its purpose is not to gain us entry into the inner circle of the Illuminati who know what's coming tomorrow. No, the revelation of Jesus Christ wakes us up from a dream world that pretends that God is insignificant. It wakes us up from the pretend dream world that imagines that God can somehow be, ignore, can somehow be ignored without consequence. The purpose of revelation is our obedience. Psalm 115 talks about idols that are created by people that have eyes but don't see. They have ears but they don't hear. And then Psalm 115 warns us that those who make them become like them. Don't miss that. What you and I love or value or trust, we eventually become like. Or as Greg Beale, the theologian, writes, what people revere, they resemble, either for their ruin or their restoration. So if you worship a deaf and blind idol made of wood or stone, you will become spiritually deaf and blind. Won't be able to hear God's voice, won't be able to see his glory. But the, the, the opposite is also true. If you love, trust, and worship Jesus, you will soon become like him, transformed by the vision of his glory. So when Jesus pulls back the curtain to unveil his glory, John is overwhelmed with awe, to say the least. But in seeing Jesus' glory, John is transformed. He's changed. It, this vision of Jesus' glory changes the way that he sees the world. It changes the way that he sees himself and the way that he sees his present situation. And it gives him hope for the future. Friends, my prayer this week, my prayer this morning is that God uses John's vision that he recorded in Revelation to do the same transforming work in us. My prayer is that we would see with eyes of faith the glory of Jesus, not just for information, but for our transformation. So what does this transformation look like if it happens? If you're taking notes, point number one is this. Count the cost. Count the cost. That's verses 9 through 11 of our text. So let's look at God's word together. Revelation 1, verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which would be Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. We'll pause there. The island of Patmos that, that John is on is an island that sits, sits between Greece and Turkey, it's about 40 miles south 
west of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. But we need to understand that John's stay on this island is not a summer vacation. The, the Roman Empire used this island for political prisoners. So from tradition or his, church history, we know that after being whipped and shipped off to the island of Patmos, most prisoners who were imprisoned on this island were left in shackles for the duration of their stay there. They were left to wear scanty clothing, and they were given insufficient food. And it, the, the bed that they slept on was the bare ground. It was a rocky island. So this is not a summer vacation. He's in prison. He's in exile. Why? Why did Rome, why did the Roman Empire imprison John on this island? Well, verse 9 tells us. It was on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The word of God was so precious to him, he would rather be imprisoned on the island rather than denounce the word of God, rather than denounce Jesus. So John didn't do anything wrong. John did exactly what he's supposed to. John did what was right. He refused to renounce Jesus. And what's his reward? He ends up alone in jail on the island of Patmos. Doesn't make sense. A lot of people think today that, you know, if I do the right thing, then God owes me good. You know, if I, if I, if I wait to have sex until marriage, then God owes me a spouse. If I take care of my body, God owes me health. If I do what's right, God owes me good. But you look at John, the apostle, beloved by Jesus. That's not his experience. What do we do with that? Well, notice in verse 9, John begins... He says, I, John, so John's the author, the human author, this is the disciple John, I, John, your brother and partner. So he's writing these seven churches and he refers to himself as their brother and partner. It's interesting, he doesn't, he doesn't set himself apart as the apostle John, which he is, he could have done that. Instead, he, start, he starts verse 9 by sharing with these churches what they have in common. John's situation on the island is unique. It's a unique set of circumstances. But his experience of tribulation, of trial and suffering as a Christian is typical for all believers. In verse 9, he summarizes that experience that we, is common to the Christian even today in three different terms. He's a partner in, first, the tribulation, second, the kingdom, and third, the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, by tribulation, don't, don't, don't think of that as some unique period down the road that's kind of a, a, an extreme amount of suffering. By tribulation, he just means suffering, trials that we experience this side of heaven. But isn't Jesus king? He is. Chapter 1, verse 5, he's the king of all kings. He rules the world. And he invites those who trust in him to be a part of his kingdom. Kingdom and priests, chapter 1, verse 6. But Jesus' kingdom is real, he is a king, but his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. When Jesus hung on the cross, the religious leaders looked at him hanging on the cross and they mocked him. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross then and we will believe in him, they said. 
You see, they assumed that if Jesus was a powerful king, like people thought he was, or he claimed to be, then he would avoid the cross. But in reality, they missed the point. In reality, Jesus' power and his authority was on display by him enduring the cross for sinners like us. He didn't take the easy path, a shortcut. He took the hard path. That displays his power and authority. But they didn't see it. They had the wrong concept. For Jesus, it was first the cross, then the crown. First the cross, then the crown. And guess what? That path of first the cross, then the crown, is the same path for his followers today. That's why John says, refers to himself as a partner, a brother and a partner in the tribulation. We're in this together. <laughs> this, is, this is the normal experience of the Christian. It's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or as Jesus puts it, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Why does this matter? Why does, this, why does, why does John start here? My friends, I want you to imagine that tomorrow you pack your bags and you envision we're going on a family vacation. We're going on a cruise. And you, you go to the ship and you board a battleship, the U.S. Navy. But you assume, you don't know that, you assume that this is a carnival cruise ship. How's that going to go for you? Well, if you expect the person in uniform to come and fluff your pillow and get you a drink, oh, you're going to feel offended when he tells you to get up and man your station. I would like to talk to the manager. Or if you're on the ship and you're looking for, where's the buffet line? Where's the hot tub? This isn't what it looks, this ship does not look like what it did in the brochure. And then when somebody starts shooting at your ship, that's when it gets really confusing. What kind of cruise ship is this? Friends, the reason I bring that up as an illustration is because some people will talk about Christianity as if it is a cruise ship. Trust in Jesus. You can have wealth and health and prosperity now. It's a big old love boat. It's a big old cruise ship. Come on in. But if you believe that and sign on the dotted line of Christianity, you're going to soon realize that ain't true. It wasn't true for John. It's not true for us either. You see, wrong, wrong expectations are often what is often the reason that we are so discontent. We thought it was a cruise ship. Wrong expectations is why we're often discouraged and in despair. It's why some people join a church and then leave Christianity down the road. I didn't sign up for this. I thought it was going to be wealth, health, and prosperity. But friends, listen, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear. Christianity is not, this side of heaven, Christianity is not a cruise ship. This side of heaven, it's, we're in a battle. We're at war. So we should not, let's set our expectations right. We should not be surprised by trials as though something strange were happening to us. The Bible's been very, been very clear all throughout the New Testament. 
And, and, and it's in having those right expectations that I think helps promote the patient endurance that John talks about in verse 9. He's our partner in tribulation and in, king, in the kingdom and in patient endurance. If you've ever watched one of those National Geographic um, nature videos and you see a lion hunting, one of the things the lion will do is you'll, there'll, there'll be a herd of buffalo or whatever they're hunting, and they'll try to isolate one, one of the animals and get them away from the herd. Because if, if you can isolate, if, if the herd's together, you, the lion's going to be trampled. But if you, can, if you can get one of the animals by itself, then it's more vulnerable. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And when he's hunting, one of the tactics of Satan is to get you and I to believe that we're alone. That no one else, no other Christian is struggling with the things that you are struggling with. In fact, there must be something wrong with you if you're struggling like that. And Satan whispers that into your ear. And when you believe that, it's discouraging, isn't it? You ever think that? I'm, I must be the only one who, in the, face of this, in the face of the planet, the only one in all of Christendom who's ever suffered like this, struggled like this. I'm alone. And then that discouragement sets in and we want to just throw in the towel. But John reminds us we're not alone. Imagine the letter that he's writing. The book of Revelation being read to these seven churches. They'd, each church would hear John say to them, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. To the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, to each of the seven churches, they would hear brother and partner in the tribulation. John was with them in this. And they had each other. That's what John's reminding them. So Christian, you're not alone. If Satan's whispering in your ear, you're, you're something wrong with you. You're broken because you're, you're unique in your suffering. No, that's a lie from Satan. You're not alone. We are brothers and sisters in the tribulation and the kingdom. So just look around the room. You're not alone. This is your family. This is your brothers and sisters. We're not perfect but we're going to pray for each other and lean on each other and help each other to find patient endurance this side of heaven. But friends, notice where John says this patient tribulation or this patient endurance that we need. If we're gonna make it in this tribulation, notice where this patient endurance is found in verse nine, at the end of verse nine. Patient endurance in what? Who? In Jesus. We need each other and we need to come to Jesus. If we're going to endure and thrive, we need to come to him again and again and again because that's where it's found. This is why Jesus told us in John 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Don't forget, that's kind of the big idea of Revelation. Jesus wins. He's overcome Look to him. So in verses 9 through 11, John starts off reminding us, count the cost. Count the cost, church. 
we enter God's kingdom through many tribulations, which requires patient endurance. Count the cost. Now, you may think, well, I'm already tired. This does not sound fun. Count the cost? I don't want this. Why would I count the cost, John? Well, there's a simple answer. Imagine tomorrow you found out that the plot of land next to where you live is for sale. And you know, you're given this secret that in the soil of this plot of land are diamonds worth a billion dollars. You buy the plot of land, you get everything that's in the soil. Now, if you find this out tomorrow, are you going to complain about emptying your bank account to buy that plot of land? Thank you. One person's not going to complain. You all are going to complain about that? No. You know why? Because it's worth it. It's worth it. You will empty your bank account with joy knowing that what you get is better. And that's John's point. We get something better. You know what the better is? Jesus. Point number two, behold the glorious Christ. Behold the glorious Christ. We're going to see this in verses 12 through 16. Look with me at God's word again. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Whoa. So last week I was having lunch with Jason Brown, and Jason Brown had made a bowl of chili, and it looked tasty. So I said, well, how'd you make it? And he told me that the secret to his bowl of chili is dehydrated chilies. So we'll explain. So he said, well, you take chili peppers that were once bright and plump, you pick them, you dehydrate them for a long shelf life, you buy them as the chef, and then what you do is you take these dehydrated, dehydrated chilies and you soak them in hot water so that you rehydrate them, and then you can use them in the soup. Delicious. That's the secret, he said. Now, you can push my illustration too far, but I, I imagine this is, this is kind of like how John received this revelation and gave it to us. God, if he wanted to, God could have chosen to give everyone in this room the exact same experience of a vision like John had. But he doesn't. In God's wisdom, he pulled back the curtain and showed the glory of Jesus to John. And then he tells John, I want you to write down with words, with words, what you see. Now, apart from God's help, the words that we just read about in verses 12 through 16, they may just be words on a page. And we go, okay, that's weird. And we move on with our day. But 
like dehydrated chilies restored with water, when the Holy Spirit helps us to read God's word, the words come alive. And we were once blind, but now we all of a sudden see. We see, with the Spirit's help through his word, we see with eyes of faith what John saw. That's why my prayer this morning and all week has been, Lord, help me, help us at First Baptist, not just to read words on a page, help us to see. God, you, you said, let there be light, and there was light. Open our eyes. Let there be light right now in our hearts that we might see. Oh, I pray that he does that even as we read these words. Remember, as we look at this vision that Jesus gives to John, that the revelation of Jesus, apocalyptic literature, is symbolic. So in hearing what John saw, our job is not to act like a police forensic artist who's sketching a picture. Uh, Jesus was about six foot tall, had a gray beard and brown skin, and then on your notes you're drawing, you're drawing a picture. Don't do that. Don't draw the picture, because if you do, you're going to end up with a very bizarre, sword-swallowing man with fire coming out of his eyes. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. Notice how John uses the word like, like, like. His eyes were like a flame. His feet were like bronze. It's symbolic language. It's symbolism that shows reality. And so this symbolic language describes Jesus in his glorious, exalted, present tense at the right hand of the Father state. Jesus the victor. So what what did John actually see? Let's try to walk through. What, What did he see? Well, he starts in verse 12. He says, he saw the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So this voice that was like a trumpet, he turns around and he sees the voice. Now these lampstands, if if we keep reading by verse 20, we know from verse 20 the lampstands are the seven churches that he's writing to. So notice in verse 13 that in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the churches, stood one like a son of man. In the midst of. Jesus, the son of man, is not distant, cold, or indifferent to his people. No, he's in the midst of his people. He knows your hurt. He knows your pain. He knows the confusion that you're wrestling with. He knows your sorrow, your joy. He's in our midst. Now, there were more than seven churches in Asia, but one reason I think that John picks these seven is not only because it kind of forms a kind of a letter, circle that these letters will be, this letter will be passed on to church to church to church. But the, the seven, the number seven is not accidental. The number seven is symbolic of completeness. So they were real local churches in John's day, but in writing to seven, what he's saying is he's writing to all churches. He's writing to us. Don't miss this. First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro is one of Jesus' lampstands. Jesus is in our midst. We don't have to invite him in. He's here. He's present. And he is present to encourage and to strengthen us. He's present to tell us how to live, and he has every right to do that. 
and he's here present to correct us when we don't live the way that he calls us to live as a church. And the more that we rely on ourselves and the more we just do what we want, the dimmer our light will shine as a church. But the more we rely on his spirit and the more we do what he calls us to in his word, the brighter the lampstand of First Baptist will shine in a dark world. Well, he keeps going. Verse 13 then introduces us to this one like a son of man. Well, what's that about? Well, it comes from Daniel 7, uh, the scripture reading that Pastor Tony read earlier. You can find it, if you want to, you can find it on page uh, 4 of your your program. I encourage you to read it this afternoon and and kind of reflect on this because there's so much overlap with what John sees or how how he describes this vision with what Daniel 7 is saying. So a little bit of context in Daniel. After Daniel survives the lion's den in Daniel 6, he then receives two visions in Daniel 7. The first vision had four beasts that were symbolizing four powerful, terrifying nations. The second vision that Daniel received is in, the, is in what we read earlier. It's in Daniel 9, or Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. And in the second vision, we're shown how the Ancient of Days, which is a name for God, he is the eternal God, he is the Ancient of Days, he is the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the eternal God, he is the, that's God. The second vision shows how the Ancient of Days took his seat on the throne as judge. So yeah, sure, there are four kingdoms that are intimidating and powerful, but God's reminding Daniel that the Ancient of Days will take his seat on the throne and he will give the Son of Man authority, glory, and sovereign power such that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. And he will give dominion to the Son of Man that is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Well, that sounds really good. God, the Ancient of Days, will give this kingdom, this rule, this power to the Son of Man. Well, when would this Son of Man come? And who is he? We don't need to guess. As Jesus stood trial, almost 600 years after this Daniel vision, when Jesus stood trial in Mark 14, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ Are you the son of the most blessed? And I know that some people say, well, Jesus never said that he is God. Baloney. Listen, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. There you go. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. There you go. And coming with the clouds of heaven. As the son of man, Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is Lord of Lords. These powerful nations that are intimidating, got nothing on Jesus. And then we see how Jesus is dressed. So he's the son of man, and then we see John focuses on his clothing. And, And I think part of the reason that he focuses on the clothing is because our clothing makes a statement, right? If you see a woman wearing a white coat with a stethoscope around her neck, you know that she's a doctor, If you see a man wearing dark blue pants and a dark blue jacket and a badge on his chest, he is a police officer. Clothing makes a statement. 
So when John sees Jesus wearing a long robe and a golden sash in verse 13, it's making a statement. He is our great high priest. In other words, he's the one who bridges the gap. He's a mediator. He bridges the gap between a holy God and sinners like you and me. He bridges the gap. And he says to us, come near. Come on. I'm your priest. Come near. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says that because Jesus is our great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. He is our high priest who gives us access to God. Well, after his clothing, then John looks at or describes the hair. He's got white hair. So if you've got white hair, you're in good company. Verse 14, his hair is white, like white wool, like snow. Now hold on. We just read about this, Pastor Tony read about this in Daniel 7, and the white hair, the white wool like snow that is hair is describing the ancient of days. And we know that the ancient of days is God in Daniel 7, 9. So why is John describing Jesus, the son of man, like the ancient of days? Is that a mistake? No. He is saying Jesus is God. He is like the ancient of days. He's not just the king of kings and lord of lords. He's also the divine king of kings and lord of lords. Then later in verse 14, we see his eyes. His eyes, we're told, were like a flame of fire. So if the Ancient of Days sits as judge in the divine courtroom, Jesus' blazing eyes portray his ability to see and to judge the hearts of men and women. One writer describes Jesus' eyes this way. Here is burning, all-penetrating intelligence. Here is power to read secrets, to bring hidden things to light, to warm and search all hearts at a single glance. His gaze is one of inspiring warmth to the righteous as well as terror to the hypocritical and the godless. Whoa. It keeps going. Verse 15 says, his feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. We're gonna see later in chapter three that this is likely referring to the moral purity of the Son of Man and the rightness of his judgments. Then we hear his voice, then John hears his voice. And when he hears his when when the Son of Man speaks, we're told it's like the roar of many waters. Hearing Jesus' voice is like standing at the base of Niagara Falls. If you've ever, if you've ever stood at the base of a massive waterfall, it's overwhelming. And that's the point. It's overwhelming to hear the voice of the Son of Man. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Again, verse 20 helps us understand what this is. The stars refer to angels. So I think what he's saying here is that not only is Jesus the king of kings on earth, Jesus is also king of kings in the heavens. 
he rules and has dominion and authority over the angels and the demons and over Satan himself, over the angelic world. He's the boss. And then from his mouth, we're told, verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. By his word, from his mouth, by his word, the world was created. By his word, Jesus sustains all creation. The reason that electrons circuit, circle around is because Jesus says, keep circling. The reason that the planets orbit the sun, I know there's gravitational pull and all that, but he makes that. The reason that the universe exists and continues is by the authority of Jesus' word. And by his word in the future, all will be judged. This image of a sword is an image of judgment. His words cut through bone and marrow, soul and spirit. His word is living and active. His word exposes the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We can pretend and fake and hide and his word cuts right through the pretense and shows us for what we are. And finally in verse 16, we're told his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You know, when there's an eclipse, a solar eclipse, uh, the government will give warnings, don't, don't stare at the eclipse. Why? You go blind. That's not the sun in full strength. It will still blind you. So there's a reason for the warning. It's glorious. It's powerful. And as John is looking at the glory and the exaltation of Jesus, he is so awesome. He is so glorious. He's grasping for words. The, the closest thing that John could come up with is it's like staring at the sun. With no moon to kind of cloud it, it's like staring at the sun in full strength. It's, it's too much. Now listen, we've, we've tried to walk, I've tried to walk us through each of the elements of this revelation of Jesus in the vision that, that, that Jesus gives to John. But as George Caird warns us, we must not unweave the rainbow. Do not unweave the rainbow of Jesus' glory. What he means by that is, all the parts that we just went through piece by piece, all the parts, all the elements belong together. You can't separate them. Don't try to compartmentalize God. All these things are put together and they belong together. He is the judge with blazing eyes. And he's the high priest who says, come near. Whether it's God's mercy or his justice, his love or his wrath, his being an all-consuming fire or being gentle and lowly. All the attributes of God are in harmony. They are not at odds with each other. And listen, for those who are in Christ, all the attributes of God are on your side. All of them. If you're in Christ, all the attributes of God are on your side. 
So don't look at John's vision of Jesus like a museum exhibit. Hmm, interesting. Moving on. Don't look at it that way. This is reality. This is truth. Look at Jesus clothed in all his attributes in harmony. Look at, look at Jesus clothed in all his attributes of deity and worship. It demands Jesus' glory demands our response. If we don't respond, we're not looking. He, so, so, so as you look at this, why does, we, we already had a vision, we already saw Jesus in chapter one, one through eight. Why does he do it again? Because it's not just for our information. It's for our transformation. So look at Jesus and ask yourself, okay, he's the high priest, got it. But are you running to God? He's opened the door. He's given you access. Are you going to him? He's the judge with eyes that are like a flame of fire. Are you fleeing from sin? Or are you flirting with the line of sin, playing with fire, thinking that you're not going to get burned? This is truth. He's the son of man whose rule has no term limits. That's really true. Are you resting confidently in his rule as the world falls apart? His glory is not a museum exhibit. His glory is meant to change us, which is what happens to John, and which is what should happen to us. So count the costs. Behold the glory of Jesus. Point number three. Fall at his feet in worship. Fall at his feet in worship. This is verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when the, when the curtain pulled back, and John saw Jesus. He isn't like, Sup, Jesus? High five! No. He's overwhelmed by his glory. He fell at his feet as though dead. I'm a dead man. And this is not unique. John's not the only one. When you read Old Testament, New Testament, when a when, when somebody comes in contact with God, this is what happens. When the prophet Isaiah sees God's glory, the earth shook and he cries out, woe is me, I'm coming undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. When Daniel heard God's voice, his strength fail, failed him and he fell on his face like John. When Peter begins to understand something of who Jesus is, he's so overwhelmed, he says to Jesus, Get away from me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's the pattern. 
when you see God, your knees buckle. Earlier this week, I was standing by the west doors of our church building, and I was watching the sun set and reflecting on this text. And it was interesting, because if I stood in front of the window and stared at the sun, was, guess, my, guess what my reaction was? I was like this. Because the sun was right there, setting beautifully. But it was too much. It was too powerful. I, I had to avert my eyes. I had to cover my eyes. It was, it was too much. But, but then, as I stood there, if I stood, if I took a step eight inches to the right, the door frame of that wind, the, the door frame was there, then blocked the sun, and I could stare straight forward without having to do this. The reason I no longer had to cover my eyes was not because the sun's glory was diminished. The sun didn't disappear when I did this. The reason I didn't have to avert my gaze was because I was now looking at something else. In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis writes this. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. But God wills our good and our good is to love him. And to love him, we must know him. And if we know him, we shall fall on our faces. If we do not, that only shows that what we are trying to love is not yet God. Though it may be the nearest approximation to God which our thought and fantasy can attain. Part of my prayer in reading this is, Come on, I, I, I want to I fall on my face in worship. I want to see this. Why, why, when we're singing, I'm praying that. I, I want, Lord, help me to see. I'm looking at so much other stuff. Help us to see. The reality is that sometimes we shape our view of Jesus like it's some cultural buffet line. We take the parts about Jesus that we like based upon our preferences and our personal feelings or opinions, you know, I, I want to take this and this and this. I want a nice, tolerant, happy Jesus. But we ignore and leave on the buffet line the other aspects of Jesus. Blazing eyes, voice like a waterfall, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I don't, I don't know what to do with that one. I'm just going to leave that on the buffet. But listen, what these churches needed was the truth about Jesus. When these churches were facing the mighty Roman Empire who had no problem putting them to death, how would they endure? Remember, remember verse 9. The patient endurance that is in Jesus. The patient endurance that is in Jesus. But which Jesus? Our culture's bobblehead Jesus? The Jesus is my homeboy Jesus? My buddy buddy Jesus? No, not the made up domesticated ideas of us creating Jesus in our own image. What, what these churches needed 
if they're going to endure and find the patient endurance was the Jesus in Revelation 1. The victorious, exalted, glory so majestic you can't stare at it, Jesus, who makes your knees buckle that Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible with all of his parts, none ignored, put together. And when we try to put all this together and look at who Jesus is and all his non-competing attributes, our response is, whoa. We fall on our face. We worship. Friends, the truth, the truth, whether we see it or not, the truth of Jesus is glorious, is overwhelming. He is awesome. He is holy, distinct, other than, transcendent, in a category all his own. That's true. Everything John is describing about Jesus is true. But don't assume that all this awe-inspiring, knee-buckling truths about Jesus means that he is somehow cruel or harsh. Notice, after John falls at the feet of Jesus, notice how Jesus responds. The text says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. The right hand of Jesus that holds the stars in his hand is the same right hand that is laid upon John, prostrate, and and says, Fear not. That same right hand strengthens and encourages John. You know, when the prodigal son returned from his life of sin and threw himself at the mercy of his father, what did the father do? Lifted him up, embraced him, threw a party for him. My son is home. If you come to this awesome, knee-buckling Jesus, That's what he will do. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So why did John not need to be afraid? Verse 17, fear not. Why not? Why should he not be afraid? Well, Jesus answers, I am the first and the last. In other words, what he's saying, what he's reminding John is, Jesus has the first word of history. And he... Jesus, not Rome, not China, not America, not any future empire, he, Jesus, will have the last word. He has the first word of history. He will have the last word of history. He will outlast every other king and president and prime minister who has term limits and will die. He will not die. But he adds another reason why John does not need to be afraid. Verse 18, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus says, I died. He died, but that wasn't Jesus' end. He is alive for how long? Forevermore. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, he says to John, fear not. Fear not. Jesus is the judge. He will sit on the throne with his blazing eyes and sword, double-edged sword. And we will give an account to him who is amazing and glorious. But he is 
also a very unique judge, any, unlike any other judge we and I can think of. Because not only is Jesus the judge who decides our judgment, innocent, guilty, he also, we're told, has the keys of death. Friends, the Bible is very clear that the wages, the consequence of your sin and mine is death. The wages of sin is death. But as the sinless son of God, who is both fully God and fully man, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was not dying for his own sin. He was dying on the cross in the place as the substitute for all who would trust in him. And so for those who humble themselves and come to Jesus for help, they aren't whacked on the head with his gavel. Those who bow before this judge are told, fear not, your sins are forgiven. I've taken all your sins, past, present, and future, and I've nailed it to the cross. You bear it no more. Fear not. And that person who trusts in Jesus may die, but guess what? Jesus has the keys of death, and he will unlock the door for them so that they can also defeat death just like Jesus did. How did he defeat death? By rising on the third day. But there's also a warning here, because for those who reject Jesus, for those who ignore Jesus, for those who assume that Jesus is their homeboy, for those who assume that they're good enough, on this day of judgment, they will realize that on that day that they were much more sinful than they realized. And God is much more holy than they ever thought. And on that day, it will be too late. Death's door will be locked. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, today is the day of salvation. Jesus stands as the one who holds the key of death in Hades. He died and he rose again out of his great love for you and out of his love for the glory of God and he offers us salvation. I pray that you humble yourself before him. I pray that today you turn from your sin and from your self-reliance and you trust in Jesus, the victorious God who died and rose again and who holds the keys of death that you might hear from him today, fear not, your sins are forgiven. As one writer notes, fear is a powerful force. Fear can keep us from doing what's right and it can make us do what is, we know is wrong. All fear is firmly rooted in the fear of death, the fear of criticism, the fear of rejection, the fear of financial loss, the fear of pain. They are all at rock bottom, the fear of death. So do you see what John is saying, how that would be encouraging to these churches in the first century, how they would be emboldened to live under the threat of Rome. I imagine them saying, what's the worst that Rome could do to me? Kill me? Go ahead. Because guess what? Jesus, the son of man, has the keys of death, and he'll get me out. <laughs> Yesterday, we grieved the death of our beloved brother, Ralph Austin. Remember here for 51 years, married to Margaret for 71 years, 92-year-old man, loved Jesus. We loved him. He loved this church. So we grieved together. But his funeral was also filled with hope because Ralph trusted the one who has the keys of death and Hades. 
So we know from scripture that right now, Ralph is present with the Lord. But when Jesus comes a second time, when he returns, Ralph Austin will rise again. Not as a spirit floating around the clouds, he will rise again with a glorified body that will not get sick, that will not suffer, that will not have tears and sorrow and sin. It won't die again. How do we know that? Come on, how do we know that's true? Don't take my word for it. The son of God said it. And he told John in verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And friends, Jesus never lies. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our response to what is true often falls woefully short of reality. We want to see you, to see your son as you are. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of your spirit. God, I cry out to you for my sake and for the sake of our congregation. Well, give us eyes to see. Not just for our information, but for our transformation. That we be changed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold your glory. Lord, forgive us when we focus on lesser things. Shift our eyes from worthless things, from selfish things. Help us to look and look and look and pray and pray and pray. And would you help us to see, to love and to trust and to worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.